If you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. We will begin reading in verse... Uh, let's, let's actually pick it up in verse 1. I, I think it's important to read the verses we'll be covering today in the context of what's been going on in chapter 2 so far. <clears throat> Therefore... We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection under him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little time, a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And here we come to our text for today. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he, was, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text and thank you for the truths that it conveys to us. And I pray that we as your people would listen and heed the ways of thinking that it commands us to think. And that we would feel appropriately in response to the truths revealed herein. I pray that for these moments that we have together to pour over your word and to look at it together, that we would be in submission to your spirit as he works in our lives to show us where we need to change. And I pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. So last week we spent a significant amount of time on the phrase at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It's a difficult message to preach, talking about the problem of suffering in the context of this world, a world that has, according to Scripture, been subjected to Christ, that he's in charge of everything. So we look at the world and we sense a discontinuity with that. It doesn't look like Jesus is running the show when you look at the world. And so it moves forward from there, showing that Jesus was the one who endured more suffering and wrath than anyone who has ever lived. And he is perfecting or he is he is redeeming the world through suffering and that we should not count its slowness for God to fulfill his promise towards us, but that he's being patient. He's essentially calling us to repentance through the things that are happening in the world. And he is 
purifying and sanctifying, preparing his children for the revelation of glory that's to happen to us. So if you missed that, please go and listen. That sets it up or tees up this message today. So in verse 10, we see this phrase, for it was fitting that, uh, that he for whom and by whom all things exist. And then he goes on. But I wanted to focus a little bit on this phrase, it was fitting. We'll see this week and next week that God is, if you will, an artist. And his artwork is this creation. This is the story that he is communicating to us. And he uses artistic themes and ways of communicating his ideas to us that we need to pay attention to. Most of us, just kind of follow with me here for a little bit, most of us at a very young age start creating stories, right? You don't talk to any child nowadays who hasn't in some way put together some type of story. We love hearing stories. We love participating in stories. We love acting out stories. And as we get older, that muscle or that tendency begins to kind of die off because we realize because we're pragmatists and materialists, well, I could never get paid for these stories and creating these stories, maybe, so I'll just kind of give up that attitude of creating story. But what that motive or what that muscle in our minds and in our hearts to create story and experience story and be a part of story, it is part of being made in the image of God that we sense there is a story going on. That story or some unit of truth being communicated through events is what's happening in the world. Without a story that sets over all events in the world, it's a meaningless world. So we feel in our heart of hearts that there ought to be, that there is, there should be a story that makes sense of all stories. What God is doing in this world is very much a display. Does that make sense? That what that he's showing something. You can read this in many different places in Scripture. We won't go through all of them. I'm trying to be disciplined and keep this a shorter message. He's displaying something. And and to the degree that he is displaying something, we are beholding what he is displaying. We are, in a sense, the audience, but we are also part of the cast. So he has a story that he's unfolding, and he's presenting it to us in the heavenly beings. Part of maturing as a believer is developing the muscles in your mind so that you can hold the whole story together. You don't focus on one event or one strand or one theme, but to look at all of Scripture and what God has done throughout history and to hold it in your mind so that you understand your life and what's going on in the world around you in the context of that story. That it doesn't look like a meaningless world anymore. You understand how to view the difficulties in your life. You understand how to view the difficulties in other people's lives because it's a part of the grand story. So why am I saying all this in connection to this phrase, it was fitting? In view of all that we talked about last week and all the dissonance that we see in the world, we must be able to trust and understand through these very doctrines, that what God is doing is fitting. He's not out of control. It's not 
like he's responding or reacting to something. He's not trying to piece it together as it goes on. In this phrase, the author is communicating, it was fitting, meaning it was the right thing to do, and God is weaving this together as a grand story. He's not caught off guard. He's not surprised. He's not reacting or changing his plan to fit with what we do. The cross was not plan B or C or D. It's always plan A, and it's always been plan A. Part of our role is to behold the story, to see what God is doing, and to say yes and amen at the deepest level of our hearts. So it was fitting. This is, this is the authors trying to draw our attention back to God's rule and reign over the world. It was fitting that He, talking about God here, for whom and by whom all things exist. Again, acknowledging the sovereign reign of God as Almighty Creator. Not just by whom all things exist, but for whom all things exist. That He is the Creator. Sure, we understand that. Hopefully, you understand that. But it is also for Him. He is both the Creator in the beginning, He started it, and it is for Him. The end of creation is for Him. It's echoed by Paul in the person of Jesus when you read Colossians 1. We won't go there just for the sake of time. The author's point here is that this great story of salvation being worked by God is His idea. This great story of, crea- of salvation is his idea from the beginning. When you think about a being such as God, you have to understand that nothing he does is out of obligation. He didn't have to create this world. He didn't have to create you and me to have people to worship him. Remember what he says to the Pharisees? If they don't worship me, the rocks are going to cry out. And the angels worship him. Jesus didn't have to die for the angels. He is still their Lord and God, and they have to submit to him. But they never sinned, the ones who are still with the Lord in heaven. He didn't have to create this world with this whole ordeal of redemption for him to receive glory. But it was fitting. This is the story that he's unfolding to communicate things about himself to us and the heavenly beings. He is the author. And as such, it is his prerogative to unfold the story however he so desires. The application here, we'll we'll try to intersperse some application as we go along. Regardless of what your story has been like, regardless of the things that are going on in life, understanding God's sovereignty over your life, your response should be what Jesus challenges Peter to think and to feel when he's walking with him on on the shoreline. So Peter's walking and Jesus is reinstating him as a disciple and, and Jesus says, what is it to you, Peter, if... I want John, essentially, to stay alive until I return. Why why should you care about that? You follow me. 
So the message to you and me is regardless of what your experience is, what your part to play in this grand story is, you follow the Lord. You may want the story of someone else. You may want the part to play of someone else. You may not be satisfied with what's going on in your life, but you follow the Lord. Because we don't know how he's going to work everything out. Your life may be 100% different tomorrow than it is today. One phone call could change anyone's life in here. And it'd be forever different. But you follow him. That's the challenge to us. As we live under the authority of God, the sovereign, for whom and by whom all things exist, you follow the Lord. Then we come to this next phrase. In bringing many sons to glory. I talked a, a little bit about story and the themes that God is using to communicate his glory and communicate his beauty to us through this story. And and in this phrase, the author unveils just a little bit of one of the themes that we should uh, appreciate and, and celebrate, as it were, in the gospel. In bringing many sons to glory. Here the author shows us a specific way that God is unfolding his story. The idea of sons or being sons it's very significant for us to understand and emphasize. So this is a theme throughout Scripture. Israel is even called uh, the children of God, right? Uh, all sons of God. And, you, um, you know, there's strands in our culture right now that says the Bible is uh, sexist and doesn't give a proper place for women. The word son is used in a generic sense in the same way that we would say mankind, referring to all people. But also there's the theme of being an heir, So the inheritance was left to the sons, right? Because the daughters married into other families and received inheritance through those sons. But in a sense, through the gospel, we're all made sons because we all receive an inheritance. So Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of God. But in Christ, we are all made sons, children of God, brought to glory. Here, in, the, in these verses that we're going to be looking at for the rest of this morning, it goes a little bit further than just children of God or sons of God, sons and daughters of God. And we'll get to that here in a second. But just before we get there, just understand that this is one of the major themes of this story, that those who were previously traitors enemies of God, rebellious, haters of God, the Bible says. Our mouths were full of curses and bitterness, the way of peace we have not known, and there is no fear of God before our eyes. That's Romans 3. That's who we were. And us, all of us, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And God has made us that group of people that among whom we all once lived. He has now made you and I sons, sons and daughters, children of God. This is an astounding theme. This is something that you don't find in many other stories, right? There always has to be a process of earning your place a process of repentance or growth or training whereby you earn what's given to you. In this story, it's completely unmerited. 
It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, here's, here's the point of his sentence, should make, this is what was fitting, it was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This is an extremely important phrase for both this week's message and next week's message. First, we have to work a little bit on this word founder. Different translations of the Bible, you might read it, uh, leader or prince, author, captain. The same word in Greek is translated uh, ruler in some places. Maybe pioneer. Um, One strong possibility for this word for several reasons, including verses 14 through 18, is the word champion. That's what I think actually fits best with what's going on in chapter 2. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the champion of their salvation perfect through suffering. Because what's envisioned in 14 through 18 is a conflict wherein Jesus is victorious and he triumphs over an evil tyrant. And we'll get to that next week. I'm very excited about that message. But that's not what we're talking about today. Okay, Next week's title is actually Jesus, Our Champion. This week is Jesus, Our Older Brother. And if you're looking at the verses that come ahead, I hope you can see why that fits. Before we get into the main point, though, we have to deal with this difficult phrase... Make perfect through suffering. He's talking about Jesus. That's obvious from the text here. To make the founder, the champion of their salvation, perfect through suffering. So did Jesus need to be made perfect? Did he have any sin? Was he lacking in any way? Why does he need to be made perfect? Made perfect through suffering, even. It isn't like Jesus had to be purged, that he had some impurity in him, and through suffering a refinement like we do, a refiner's fire, he's then made perfect. So what's happening here? So this same word is used in the Greek Old Testament to refer to what happens to priests when they are consecrated to the service of God. So when a priest steps forward and begins to work in his capacity as an intermediary for the people of God, and he gets to wear the priestly vestments, he's called perfected or consecrated. It's the same word. So the idea here is that Jesus, the champion of our salvation, had to be, had to be made our perfect champion or be consecrated to be our perfect champion through suffering. But it's also looking forward to something as well. It's not just his role and what he did on the cross through suffering. And he is now functional as our high priest and we continue along our cheery way. It's also looking towards his exaltation. The anticipation of the scriptures is that one day Jesus will be unveiled to all creation as the Lord of all things. And we, t- we talked about this a few weeks ago. When you look forward to Revelation 5 
and many other places in Scripture, it's pictured that Jesus is receiving glory and honor and praise primarily because of his service as a suffering high priest. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Right? When they look at the throne, they see one as a lamb, one appearing as a lamb, but it's, a, it's apparent that he's also been slain. So Jesus receives glory and honor and praise because of his humiliation, right? And he is exalted, given the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's because of his suffering that he endured that he receives this glory. So being made perfect, the perfect tense, the future, what's coming, that is made possible through his suffering. We talked about this several weeks ago when he says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. So there's a completion or a perfection that comes through his service as our high priest, through suffering, that he earns that spot at the right hand of the Father. He could have sat down there at any time, at any point in eternity past beforehand, but now because he has suffered even death, then it is fitting, it is appropriate. Every eye that beholds it says, yes, that is Jesus' spot. He deserves that. So what God is doing in unfolding this story is that it's not just arbitrary, it's not just all undiscernible events happening. God is in the heavens, we are on earth. How can we understand Him? How can we understand what He's doing? But the revealed things belong to us. And He is revealing to us what His plan is, and it makes sense. This is a sensible world. And the story of Jesus primarily is the story over all stories that makes sense of your life, that puts everything in its proper place. Just a bit of application before we get to this idea of us being Christ's brother and him being our older brother. If the Lord consecrates or perfects his own son, through suffering, so that he could minister in his role as the champion of our salvation, then why should we be surprised when trials come, when suffering comes? And this is the author's concern for his hearers. Right? When we began this study, we talked about that his hearers were probably experiencing a lot of persecution. And the indication is later in the text that we'll cover next week that the threat of death is a real issue for them. Rome didn't like Christians. And the Jews who didn't embrace Jesus as the Messiah didn't like Christians. So the threat of losing your property and losing your life, losing your reputation, all those were real things for these people. And the author is basically saying, Jesus was consecrated, made perfect through suffering, so this is we're joining with him in this strand so don't be surprised when fiery trials come this is why they're facing extreme difficulty so how can this be encouraging that's not a real happy message you're a christian yay prepare to suffer right but here's the hard truth regardless of what the prosperity heretics say suffering is coming if not now then later life is unavoidably and inescapably hard. If you're a Christian or not, it goes across the board. 
There's just difficulty. And riches don't solve the problem. Just read Ecclesiastes. You can try to numb the difficulty of life, but sometimes you set yourself up in such ease and wealth that it even feels worse. The death of the soul and what you need in Christ is still there. Becoming a Christian does not make your life easier, though, in the initial analysis. Claiming the name of Jesus invites all kinds of persecutions and emotional hardship. I mean, if you just read the opening verses to Romans chapter 9, Paul had great sorrow and unceasing anguish because of his brothers who had not accepted Jesus as the Messiah. That's the type of hardship you invite into your life by associating with the Lord and thinking his thoughts. Where this can be encouraging, though, and what, what you need to latch on to as a believer is this word glory. We kind of passed over it initially as we covered this in bringing many sons to glory. This is what we look forward to, that what we're being prepared for. We talked about this verse last week. These light momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If God prepares his son for his service as our high priest and as Lord over all things through suffering, then we join in that being prepared for glory through suffering. The path to glory with God is the path of our older brother, Jesus, who has gone before us. And this is why he can be our champion. This is why he is the pioneer, the author of our salvation, the path he took. He is the trailblazer, if you will, for the path to glory. For he who sanctifies and those who those who are sanctified all have one source. This is an important phrase. What is he saying here? Jesus is from God. We understand that. And those who believe in Jesus are in a deeply theological and practical sense from God as well. We'll just go to a few passages to support this and try to get an idea of what the author is saying here. The first one is John 1, 9 through 13. If you want to turn there, you can, just to make sure I'm not making this up. John 1, 9 through 13. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But, who, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who are in Christ have their source in God. The next passage to go to is Ephesians 2.10. The Women's Bible Study has been covering Ephesians on Tuesday nights. I think they actually just covered this passage. It's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Ephesians 2.10, obviously the verses leading up to that as well. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word workmanship is the same word used for poetry. Craftsmanship. We, we are his artwork that he's creating in Christ Jesus for good works. We have our source, our origin in God. Also, John 10 John 10, verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So what Jesus is saying, he's looking at his disciples and those who are following him, right? The the 72 or their larger group or maybe just the 12. And he's saying, you know, you're my flock, but I have other sheep that are not of this fold. They're not here. They're not following me yet, but they're my sheep. And I'm going to go get them and you're going to go help me get them and bring them in. And lastly, John 6. A lot of John this morning. John 6, verse 35. I'll read through verse 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. I will lose none of those that the father has given me. Those who are in Christ have their source, their origin in God. So Jesus is from God. He is the son of God. And we who are in Christ have our origin in God. This is what the author is saying. For he who sanctifies Jesus and those who are sanctified, us who are in Christ have one source, namely God. Just let that idea sink in before we finish out with this idea of Christ being our older brother. We will be talking about, when we, when we finally get to this idea of Christ being our older brother, all the privileges and the joys and the position of heir that comes with being a brother to Christ, with him being our older brother. But if our sources in God then this isn't something that you put yourself in. You don't earn your way into the family of God. So we got to be careful before we get to talk about all of the blessings that come with being made a member of this family and Christ being our older brother. This isn't something that you take by force. You don't deserve sonship. Because you could leave this room after we talk about all of these great things that comes with being a younger sibling to Jesus and think, wow, yeah, I wised up. I understood what was going on in the world. I submitted to Jesus and now he's my older brother and we're all part of the family of God. This is nothing we deserve. 
He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. It's not the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, but the will of God. If you are a son or daughter of God, it is because your source, your origin, is God himself. So let the peace of that take over your heart. You didn't force your way in. You didn't earn your place at the table so you don't have to keep it. The peace and the joy and the rest that is available to you when you can grasp that idea, He has made me His own. I can't recommend that enough. And then he says, this is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. The argument here is really simple. Since Jesus has his source in God, he is God himself, the second person of the Trinity. And since we, being in Christ, have our source in God, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers, his siblings. This goes back to the idea that I opened up with, with God telling us his story and the artistic themes he uses to communicate his story and to leave us in awe of what he is doing. To have a God-entranced view of all things means that you understand that everything that exists in this world, the marriage relationship, your relationships with your brothers and your sisters, that all of it is given to us to help us understand what God has done in Christ and what he is doing in Christ. And here we want to focus on the particular analogy of brother. We have to balance our analogies. I, I, I tried to find hymns that celebrated the idea of Christ being our brother. There aren't many. And if you know of any, come talk to me and don't be offended that I didn't find your favorite hymn. But there aren't a lot of hymns out there that celebrate this idea. And if they do, it's just mentioned in passing. God our Father, Christ our brother, all who live and love are thine, and they just move on, right? And what we can do is we can latch on to one analogy of faith, and then we can make that rule over all other analogies so we don't need any others. And since it was just Valentine's Day, I'm going to pick on the analogy of bride, okay? So we are called the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ, but each of us individually are never called the bride of Christ in Scripture. We together are the body of Christ. We together are the bride of Christ. We aren't individually supposed to think of ourselves in a bride-husband relationship with God. That's kind of awkward. We, the church, are together the people of God, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. But brother is an analogy that we are supposed to think in a one-to-one -one relationship with. He is your older brother. So we, you have to, when you're thinking about the gospel and what God has done, you have to bring together all the terms and the analogies and the images that God is using to communicate this story to help you understand what he has done for you. And yes, it is that important that you use the right analogies. As you grow up, everyone in this room has experienced this. As you grow up, you learn how you are supposed to talk about things, how you're supposed to think about things. 
If you use the wrong words about the wrong things, you can get in trouble, right, kids? Yeah. So God wants us to use the right words and the right images and all the right words and the right images to understand what He has done for us. And He has made you, Christian, His brother. And He supports this with three biblical quotations. The first one is from Psalm 22, 22. Psalm 22, verse 22. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So through the rest of these quotations, I'm just going to talk about what it means for Christ to be our older brother. Jesus, our older brother, tells us who God is. I will proclaim your name to my brothers. Jesus is the preeminent preacher. He fully and perfectly revealed God. If he is your older brother, if he's if you are in Christ, he is your older brother. Don't let anyone else tell you who God is and what it means to live a life that pleases him. This is why false teaching is so dangerous, because you're no longer listening to your older brother, who's the forerunner of your faith the trailblazer, the champion, showing us who God is and the true way to live a life that pleases Him. Teachers come, books come, fads come, all these things come into our life and they try to tell us, no, Jesus isn't the trailblazer. They won't say this explicitly, but the idea is you need to listen to this. This is how you live a life that pleases God. But Jesus is your oldest brother. He is the elder brother. You must listen to Him. He tells you, who God is. For those of you who still live at home, kids in the room, if you have a good older sibling, they look out for you and they tell you what is true and what is right and what is good. Good siblings do that. You look up to your older brother, your older sister, and they try to guide you into the true way of living. That's what Jesus does for us. Secondly, from this Quotation from Psalm 22. Jesus, our older brother, shows us how to worship God. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The image here is very powerful. Jesus is pictured in this psalm as the one who's leading worship in heaven. And that he's showing us the songs to sing and showing us how to march, as it were, around the throne, giving praise to God. So he shows us how to act, our older brother, Jesus. The next quotation, and again, I will put my trust in him. This is from Isaiah 8, 17, or it could also be Isaiah 12, 2. Jesus, our older brother, even though he's God himself, shows us how to trust God by trusting God himself. So the author of Hebrews is picking this up, saying this is a prophecy of Jesus that while he was a man, he didn't just have to come and exist as God and demand everyone worship him and have an easy life. It was difficult. And in so far as his life was difficult and in so far as his life was a life of suffering, he had to trust God. So he wants to show that he's not far off from you. Some of us grew up with siblings, those Kids in this room, you might have one. Don't look at them when I say this. 
Some of us grew up with siblings who did not feel the need to follow the rules. Right? Because they're the older brother. They're the older, brother, the older sister. They figured out ways to kind of manipulate the system and not obey the rules. And they're, they're kind of the enforcer to make you follow the rules, but they don't have to, right? But Jesus followed the rules. He came and lived as a man and trusted. He entrusted himself to God. It's implied here that Jesus, our older brother, shows us how to endure trials because he endured trials himself. Jesus had and has every right and prerogative to tell us what to do without having to endure any trials himself. You understand that? Jesus could have come just as our lawgiver and told us exactly how to live and exactly how to behave and exactly what to believe and never have to endure trials himself. He's God. He could have done that if he wanted to. But it was fitting that Jesus, our older brother, came and lived the way he calls us to live. He's our forerunner, our champion, and he shows us how to suffer and endure for God's sake, being brought to glory. And lastly, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is from Isaiah 8, 18. This is where I justify the use of the word older brother, because we're in a sense being given to him as additional siblings. He's before all time, right? He's existed forever, and we're given to God as his siblings. The word children can mean both, depending on how you translate it. Jesus, our older brother, identifies with us. He puts himself in the same category. I and the children, the brothers, the siblings that God has given me. He's showing solidarity or continuity with the human family. And this will be very important next week as well. He's not distant and far off from us, different from us completely. He is God and He has always been God and He will always be God, but He took on flesh to show solidarity with the human family. Jesus, our older brother, stands with us as we contend against the way of the world and the enemy. When the author quotes Isaiah 8.18 here, I and the children God has given me, Isaiah is essentially the leader of the faithful remnant in Israel at the time. So his children and his disciples, that's the only group of people who are really following the Lord. So Jesus identifies with us. He makes himself one of us. It's like that phrase, I'll tell my big brother about it. He'll take care of you. When big brother is with you, you don't have to fear the opposition of the world and the enemy. Doesn't matter how outnumbered we are, how unpopular our message is, or how the world wants to shut us down. Jesus, our older brother, stands with us. We need not fear. So as Gandalf says at the final battle, and there are names among us that are worth more than a thousand mail-clad knights. So as we end, I want to go back to a phrase I kind of passed over, and that is, he is not ashamed. 
He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Literally translated, he does not blush to call us brothers. You ever had a relative that you'd like to disown? A brother or sister where you'd say, I've I've never met him before. Rest in the fact that Jesus, when he looks at us in our frailty and weakness and limited way of following him, he does not blush to call you his brother. Because we have the same source. He is from God. We are from God. And as limited and as as frail as we are, he does not blush. He is not ashamed to call us brother. And it's an either or. And for those of you in the room who may not know him in this way, you're either with Christ, calling on his name, trusting in him, believing on him, repenting of sin in his name, hoping in his return, or you're not. You may have all the outward appearances, but inwardly you know that you don't trust your life to Him. And you've never had that sweet fellowship with Him being your older brother. And if that's you today, He calls you to repent and trust in Him as the champion of your salvation. And if you are, then He calls you brother sibling and he's not ashamed at all to do so so for those of you who have never known christ in this way may today be the day of salvation and if he is your older brother leave this room with that analogy with that picture ruling over your lives that you think of him as your older brother and he shows us how to live how to act how to believe how to trust let's pray Father, thank you again for this text and how it challenges us and shows us how to live a life that pleases you. But most of all, I thank you for Jesus, our older brother, that he is our champion and he has shown us the way to live life. He has shown us how we can please you. And he stands with us. We are not alone. We are not abandoned. When we have to stand for your truth and we feel alone and isolated and anxious because of the world or the enemy might do, may we rest in the protection and the strength of our older brother. It's in his name I pray these things. Amen.